I am Dr. Jeff Brown with your Merge Medical Podcast. I'm joined with my host, Dr. Jeff Cole. We're very excited again with the guest we have today. This is Mr. Scott Laster. Scott is the CEO and founder of MyCarePath. MyCarePath is a reimbursable integrated mobile health platform delivering improved outcomes with data-driven decisions, personalized patient education and care paths, and clinical efficiencies for a better patient experience. We're so glad to have you here, Scott. Welcome. Tell us about My Care Path. Thank you so much, Dr. Cole and Dr. Brown. It's great to be here. So again, Scott Laster, CEO of My Care Path, one of three co-founders. My other two co-founders are Brian Childress, based out of Dallas, Texas, and Corey Patrick, based here out of Memphis, Tennessee, space with myself. Just as you said, Dr. Cole, we are, or Dr. Brown, rather, we are a, a reimbursable integrated mobile health business that really is building virtual care service lines inside of specialty care outpatient groups. Whether you're a part of an integrated delivery network, hospital system, or out in private practice, we feel that adding elements of virtual care, such as remote patient monitoring, digital therapeutics, chronic care management, principal care management, annual wellness visits, all those different components, bringing them together in a single interface to prevent that point solution fatigue of all these virtual care solutions, adding in extra reimbursement into your practice to stave off some of the challenges that you've seen in the reimbursement decline in the years past, and create that better reach from a marketing perspective and improved touch with your patients while you're doing all those different elements. Our business model is a high margin recurring revenue business that really we're a platform as a service that generates per patient per month revenue for you and for ourselves in the end. And we have really what we feel is a significant market to capture. It's a sizable and virtually untapped space in this virtual space that was galvanized post-COVID that we feel is about a $20.8 billion U.S. market specialty care space. And our tech stack that we've built the business around is a mature, fully scalable enterprise solution that leverages, it's been leveraged by four different Fortune uh, four companies in the past and has over 10 billion interactions associated with it. And we've got substantial momentum. So we're really getting into our go-to-market phase of the business right now after building out all the different core platform. We've got one patent. We just acquired a business that comes with a patent and four uh, in the process of that that are in the works. And from there, we're looking to scale this business and help bring virtual care into the everyday lives of both our physician partners and our patients. That's great. How, um, you know, what I, what I witnessed, you know, during and post COVID is it just seemed that there was a lot of activity here in the venture capital space, um, even solo college kids in the basement trying to, to deliver this type of solution. What do you, what do you find, you know, after some of these companies have come and gone, what, what is your secret sauce? Uh, you may have mentioned mm -hmm. some of that, your platform, uh, your patents, patents pending. Uh, what do you think it is that has you standing and growing? That's a great call out. Uh, we kind of call ourselves health digital rather than digital health. The whole group that we've been able to assemble of now roughly 40 individuals that are a part of our business, we've generated nearly 300 plus years of healthcare experience. And our tech team is definitely a unique partnership for us, but we all come predominantly in our DNA with healthcare backgrounds. So there are a lot of people out there that I say, if you find someone that can code and then uh, find a middleware company that provides a device connection, then lots of people identify themselves as a remote monitoring company because of the reimbursement that was formed. 
And our points of distinction are that we bring a heavy, heavy medical lien behind this. So we know exactly where it's relevant. And if you just bring more data for the sake of more data without, and even if it comes with reimbursement, really you lose before you begin. And so I think lots of people generated businesses that were kind of get rich quick schemes for lack of better terms, saying we can connect you to data and then we can get you reimbursement. But our goal is much different. We have the patient at the center of what it is that we're doing. So we want to try to optimize the outcomes of those patients because then really everyone wins. You've got the payer there, you've got the provider there and the patient there. And if you can improve the outcome, then you've got true appropriateness of care. And that's where we have over 70 different design providers in the background of what it is that we're doing, making sure that what we do is relevant and we're delivering the right care at the right time for that patient and doing it in a very efficient way. So it's not just remote monitoring, but powering it or clinical decision support elements through triaging and a host of other elements. So I think really clinical appropriateness and efficiency is one of the points of distinction. And another element that comes from that is knowing all of the reimbursement space versus coming from more of a technology only background. So we've got a really robust element around audit support and making sure we do the notes documentation piece and all of that from an efficient fashion, but also a very robust fashion so that the, those that want to get into this new field, because really it's building a market where virtual care has not been a core part of people's practices in the past. And if you are to integrate it, then you need to have that protection in the background so you know that what you're doing is appropriate and also it can be backed up with the right documentation. That's awesome. I agree with Dr. Cole. It seemed like the crisis that COVID was did push a lot of the technology uh, to where it is today. When I was looking at your uh, marketing material, it looked like you had a very wide range of practices that you were servicing and also across different devices. Uh, it's probably an oversimplification, but you provide remote patient monitoring and remote therapeutic monitoring, as well as billing support for all of these specialties. Can you talk more about the product and how you're able, because I even saw that you're servicing a cancer center, you also have multiple orthopedic partnerships, which are, which are truly different practices with different patient populations. Can you speak more about the product and how, how it's delivered and how you cover that? Definitely. We really split the market into two spaces. One has gotten more of the chronic nature of medical care, and the other one is more of the episodic or surgical aspects of care, because the way that patients navigate through each of those experiences is quite different. And in an episodic space, it's more of your surgical elements. So many of us were birthed out of orthopedics specifically, whether it be Medtronic, Smith & Nephew, Zimmer Biomet, those spaces. So we really relate to those spaces. And it's a little less intuitive to think that those patients need navigation over an extended period of time. But what we found is in the surgical spaces, it's kind of changed sequences of episodes as you have a patient cared for across a full continuum. So given my background, I'll exemplify that with uh, osteoarthritis. If I show up and I've got early stage osteoarthritis, maybe the first line of defense might be a joint injection for me to try to stave off some of the pain. Well, that has a limited window of time that it works and it's got certain expectations. So for the provider to see how long that pain uh, de minimis actually happens and then picking back up and knowing, all right, now I can do another injection. But if you see those almost like heartbeats kind of shrink in regards to the effectiveness, then you can say, all right, it's time for that next step of care. Mm. And it's almost becomes like a, a customer relationship management tool. You've got a mm. funnel to know I've got a group of patients in this phase. 
I've got this uh, allotment of those patients that are now ready for the next phase of care, uh, whether it be an ablation or whatever, whatever might be the next step of care. And then you just elevate the care throughout and you build a really robust set of documentation that you can then pro provide for all these different pairs that have kind of got us in the healthcare space on puppet strings saying, you need to prove to me that this next step is the right next step. Well, you can now provide the documentation to do that. It's again, a little bit less intuitive for many of the surgical providers out in that space because they're used to doing their transaction and moving on to the next transaction. But again, it is a long journey and it's only gonna become harder and harder to navigate that because of the expectation of managing patients through the full continuum instead of just your little piece of the pie. I think all payers are driving people in value-based care to manage the whole patient and the whole continuum, not just that one piece of it. So we really hope to be a big, big part of that and helping paint the whole story of patients across that end from a surgical standpoint and mapping out each of those touch points along the way. So that's your orthopedists, whether in a neurosurgery, all those different elements, all the way up to bariatric surgery and general surgery, quite honestly. Then you've got the chronic care, which are the medical specialties. Groups like, we call them the ologies, cardiology, endocrinology, nephrology, pulmonology, all those different spaces, oncology, as you referenced. In many instances, when patients have these conditions, they've got them for life. So if I've got hypertension, that's kind of the silent killer. And we've already seen with some of our cardiology practices that you it's not dissimilar from these episodic touch points, but the difference being just when the clinic visits are. And so their different interventions are really just overall longitudinal titrations of medicine of these patients. So if I show up and it's the first time on that end and they say, Scott, you've got hypertension, what I do for you is X because it's very protocolized. I would start with that, but the effectiveness of that has high variability still. And you still start with step one and then go to step two if you see an outcome change. So with that being said, I can start with that, but if I still see systolic blood pressures on the rise or not under control, in between a three, six, eight month touch point like what exists today, I could step in and say, you know what, this isn't working, but I know exactly what to do as the next step. So I can just phone you in the right medicine at that point and get your systolic blood pressure under control in a tighter fashion versus seeing that patient six months later and then you have five-ish months of damage that happened to the heart that otherwise you wouldn't have been able to control. Those are very you know, high level examples of those elements, but that's where we hope to waylay an impact between those two different groups. I can see loyalty from the patients, particularly, I mean, I'm seeing it from, as an orthopedist from the episodic, instead of a patient getting an injection and, and three months later going, where is it that I went for that shot? You know, and instead of that being very clearly connected because they've gotten, I assume they get some communications here and there, you know, as far as feedback and, and just their connection to that particular practice. What can you, what can you talk about that? They do. And to your point and to the point of Dr. Brown's question earlier, which I think I may have even glossed over a little bit, the, the product itself can embody itself as a mobile application for patients, but we also have a text-based engagement element if they don't have a mobile device. And embedded in that piece is education, engagement for the patient, two-way communication, and then kind of a private labeling of the whole infrastructure so that it really is the physician's practice or the provider's practice that's known as providing these services to the patient with the intention of exactly that, giving a boost of a net promoter score and an extension of marketing. Why we pursued that space was exactly that story, Dr. Cole, that you bring up, where again, being birthed out of orthopedics, we have friends and family that ask us all the time, 
hey, what, what surgeon do you recommend? And this is just an ad hoc story, but they, they would say, which one do you recommend for, for my care? Say, well, have you had any care before in the past? Yeah, somebody gave me an injection. Well, who was that? I don't know. I don't remember. Just because, you know, they go on with life, et cetera. So this is a way to keep that extension and that, that touch on those patients over that period of time, even when they've had another acute event. They might be able to better remember it or go, oh, what was that app again that I used? Okay, and then log back into that and see that person's name or face and then send a note and try to reconnect. Or again, do it through a, through a text-based element. And it's similar to that. It's important to mention I would be disingenuine if I didn't touch on this, especially given what I said earlier, where all those use cases I just described, whether on the surgical side or on the medical specialty side, I was giving use cases of, you know, someone's got eyeballs looking at these data points. That's kind of step one of our product where we can bring in data and insights. But like I described, if we did that in, the, in today's age with the staffing crisis and all those different elements that exist, certainly providers don't have time to look at that data. And more data comes with the risk of medical legal liability of I saw something, but I didn't actually take action on it, et cetera. So that's where we're working with these teams to actually build in place automatic triaging, what is a measurement that's a measurement of potential concern that you might need to take action on it, and what are the consider considerations for that action, all built into our platform, and that exists today across every space that we're in. So it really takes a lot of the decision making out of the data point of seeing it and makes it a lot more actionable in the end. Yeah, that so makes sense. We, we, we talked with another company and uh, they do they do an acoustic monitoring for for the uh, for the for the gut. Yeah. Um, interesting, um, but they talked about patients entering transition zones. You know, they don't go mm -hmm. from healthy to unhealthy in, in a moment's time. That there's this this transition. So I guess perhaps that's what your team is trying to identify is, is what are these critical transition zones? How do you identify them, and, and how do you come up with protocols to act upon that? And you've absolutely hit the nail on the head of the ultimate value of our company is today it's all the different connectivity pieces. It's providing some of the clinical decision support to help with that. But in the future, it's all that data aggregation. And so we'll have all of the data of we made this recommendation and this treatment was performed. Did it yield the outcome that we expected? Yes or no? So that we can start to become very insightful not just with broader population elements, but also at a very micro phenotypic level with this patient from this area, with this background and this unique profile, this is exactly the right outcome or intervention for this patient at this point in time. So that we can get, uh, even from the great standards that exist in a lot of the medical specialties, down to very human-centric care of that specific patient needs this level of standard. An analogy for those that are surgically based that, that I come up with is why are robots so interesting and alluring for general medicine? They provide both surgical benefits as well as decision benefits. But even in the orthopedic space, despite not being able to reduce incision size and some of the other elements that exist as benefits in the other spaces, it's taking, you know, uh, an orthopedic surgeon that may not have had the best of the best uh, education and, and experience and opportunity and their peer network is really tight, and maybe they don't have naturally gifted as well as with better hands. Each of those things are a broad range of experience level, and it tightens that up, and it creates reproducibility and those different elements. We've got that opportunity with our business to do that in the clinical diagnosis and treatment space and create that same element of, of execution and kind of having a tight accuracy and reproducibility. 
As an example, today, if we lined up that same patient that I described in the orthopedic world and said, grade 1.5 Keldron-Lawrence scale of osteoarthritis, and lined up six uh, surgeons and or PM&R and other specialists and said, what would you do with this patient? You might actually get eight different responses of how that patient would get managed because there's not really the best standards that exist in that space. So how do you overcome that? Well, years of publications and clinical data or aggregating a mass clinical data really quickly and saying for this patient with this type of a uh, condition, this might be the best intervention to start with because we've gotten all these different data points. So we've got kind of a clinical goal of Im improving the accuracy and reproducibility of clinical care management of patients, not just in the episodic world with surgical interventions, but also even in the medical space where they pride themselves on having those standards. Those standards still are broad scoping generalizations. So uh, if I can ask a question, um, can we dial it back just a little bit and talk to me from, um, let's take an example like, Jeff Coles and orthopedists, this is perfect. We'll have a lot of orthopedic surgeons viewing this. Take me through how let's we can talk about the injection or a surgery and how the practice benefits, the patient benefits, because not just from an aggregation of data. We all know data is the new gold. That's great. I love it. But what I'm hearing is that my care path helps you take care of the patient, but it also helps practices meet these new quality metrics that we're all seeing to have to meet, which leads me to my next part of the question, reimbursement, right? This helps the practice with their reimbursement. You're exactly right. And the way that I frame this up today, and thank you for teeing that up as another orthopedic element, which is helpful for me. I view this as, and it seems potentially daunting. Uh, if I was an observer of this, I'd say, yeah, virtual care. I can't really hold it, feel it, touch it. What does that even mean for my group? So I, I try to contextualize it inside of the same framework of a service line that might exist and orthopedists, I understand well. So just like at some point in time, there was an orthopedic surgeon that said, I want to build out a physical therapy service line in my group. So they went through the simple steps of finding a physical therapist, building out the space if they didn't already have it or allocating the space, purchasing the physical equipment that might be needed to do that, such as tables and bands, et cetera then providing the good care and billing those services. And that created a physical therapy service line. Then the next step, they might say, well, I want to do imaging. So the same thing, I hired a tech, built the space, purchased the equipment, provided the care and billed for the services. Same thing for DME, durable medical equipment and injections. We view this as being a very similar thing. You can either in this space, hire someone to be a care coordinator inside your group, you know, task someone that already does a lot of these efforts because a lot of these billable services are actually things your office already does on a daily basis or outsource those clinical services to an organization like ourselves. We actually provide the clinical coordination and care piece for you if you don't have the staffing to do it in light of this post-COVID national staffing crisis. Then you can allocate the space for patient enrollment if you even need that and then license the technology instead of purchase the equipment and then provide the care and bill for the services. So that's kind of how you do it at a high level. And it's very simple, just like building any other care service line. And the piece that's reimbursable is there, there are, they were actually birthed prior to COVID. So Dr. Brown, you referenced remote physiologic monitoring and remote therapeutic monitoring. That's kind of one family of remote patient monitoring CPT codes that exist. There's another one of care management called chronic care management and principal care management. And then there's kind of a bucket of other things that I call it, brief behavioral assessments, remote image and video review. How many times have you been sent something that says, 
is this a little bit too red? Do I have an infection? All those things are actually billable efforts if it's funneled through the right element and the right tool to capture it. Mm -hmm. So we bring all those CPT codes together in one uh, technology interface to be able to capture the time spent doing it and become reimbursable. But if we just look at the RPM and RTM or physiologic monitoring and therapeutic monitoring as one element to contextualize the specific reimbursement capabilities, what it generates is it's about 105 to 150, $105 to $150 per patient per month where they meet the requirements of what's needed for those codes. And that could be as simple as filling out a patient reported outcomes survey, PROs or PROMs, the right number of times each month uh, on the patient's side, and then someone either in your office or as a part of our team reviewing those data. So think of RPM like the ADT home security system. Even if you don't need to call out the fire department and intervene or do anything with the police department on that end, there's still reimbursement. You would pay for mm. that to do monitoring your home. It's the same thing for the providers. Now, they can actually monitor their patients and get reimbursed even if you don't have to reach out and intervene with that patient over a period of time. Okay, I see. So ADT charges me a fee per month. And then if I call the fire department, there's a much bigger fee for the ambulance service and so forth. And that works exactly the same way. So it does not, it's a great, I didn't even think about that next step. So you can still do a telehealth visit with a patient. You can still have an office visit with a patient if you need to. And all of those are still billable services uh, outside or adjunct to these RPM services. It's and, meant to be that early warning detection to your point. And my care path helps with all elements of that interaction interactions. Absolutely. We even think of ourselves because we know this is a space that's being built and we think of ourselves as a McKinsey consulting organization. So we have a, a group called customer success managers. And again, I think this is a bit of the part of the health digital, not digital health that's imbued in the, in the heavy levels of customer service that exist in healthcare. We fly people in to actually do this over a 90 day period. And we build out this program inside your organization if you want to do it. So we help with project management and workflows and all those different components and educate the staff on what they need to be doing and how to use our systems. And we're back virtually every other week, uh, not in the sense of it's remote, but almost every other week, uh, we come out to make sure that everyone knows what they're doing and we follow the hear one, see one, do one sort of a method of teaching and education. And we do that regardless of if we provide the services or if your team provides the services. And then we kind of assess it. And at the end of that 90 days, we've set those expectations with the leadership, both administrative and physician level, and say, where do you want to be? Where would you like to be at the end of this? You've been through now a couple of billing cycles, and we can set goals of patient volume from an enrollment perspective, number of minutes of monitoring and all those things, and then have a sit down and say, look, we really think we should be taking this over from you because we haven't seen the right success from the team or the right buy-in from the team. Or we could say the team's doing great keep doing what you're doing and, and mm -hmm. rock and roll with it. And we've seen, you know, the full spectrum of that across the clients that we've got, which we're in about 15 different states, 30, we're actually now close to 60 different signed licensing agreements across the spectrum of what it is that we do. And well over 3 million is our kind of exclusive group of patients that we're going to action from as small as a two person private practice group and as large as the 10th largest hospital system in the U.S. That's fantastic. Scott, I've been hearing a little more about what people are calling precision medicine, which in my mind is, I think there's a lot of laboratory evaluations tied to that. Um, and it's, it's really more in the ology space, not the episodic space. Where do you guys bump up against that, against precision medicine? Is that something you play in a little bit or? 
It is. I'll, it's a very fascinating question. I'll get a little esoteric, but hopefully I can bring it back to something that's pragmatic in the end. When I did design and development of, of implants on that side, I often found it was really funny how simple some of the biggest predictors were that you needed. So as an example, to get the right sizing of implants from a prediction standpoint, it was height, ethnicity, and gender of a patient were three of the elements that became highly predictive of size of implant in the end from some of the work that we did. And those are pretty simple, easily captured measures. So our goal and some of our intellectual property is built around basic patient phenotypic elements. So exactly that kind of social determinants of health, what their age, gender, and that sort of level of stratification, and then their condition basis, things that are really easy to, to grab a hold of and seeing if that yields a certain level of predictability in regards to the outcomes that you might see from a patient. And we're hopeful that that actually might yield uh, really good corollary and, and great outcomes in the end, because if you can keep it simple, I think it can be scaled and be reproducible. Now, that being said, if it's not, then I think exactly those businesses can maybe take that to the next level, because there's so much fat on the bone to get benefit from in healthcare. So hopefully we can be that first step on that end. And then if we're not, we've got a lot of great strategic partnerships where we know what we know, but we know what we don't know. And we definitely don't have the expertise in that therapeutic field with kind of the pharmacogenetics and that different piece. And so we we want to try and find partnerships in that field to take it to the next level and go from maybe broad population health management down to that next tier that we could get it to a phenotypic human-centered uh, medicine and then leave the very, very patient-specific element as it relates to the genetic piece to the experts in that field, but again, find those partnerships to do it they still need to make sure that the outcomes are what they are expecting them to be. So they need these connected devices, PROs, all those different elements to gauge over a longitudinal perspective if that genotypic predictive element is what they think it is in the end. Much like some of our, we've got a couple of pharmaceutical partnerships, which is a different business model inside our business. We've got that setting up virtual care service lines as one of the verticals in our space. We also have strategic partnerships, whether it's medical device companies or pharmaceutical companies, where they need to see if their implants or devices and if their therapeutics or drugs actually have the effectiveness that they need outside of the framework of multi-million dollar clinical trials. They can actually get real-world, non-narrow-casted or whitewashed uh, patient populations and see how this performs to make sure it's working well, both based on the heightened regulatory environments coming out of Europe with the medical device directive of classifications, as well as just they could potentially expand indications once they start to see and, and inform other clinical trials once they start to see how things perform. And I think these genotypic uh, groups with the pharmacogenetic predictions are no different. They need to try to get real world evidence generation to make sure that their predictions are accurate. And this is good stuff. Now I've got more questions now. <laughs> Jeff, Jeff's got my gears turning. So, so take for instance, like the Dexcom that does the continuous glucose monitoring. Yeah. Right. Can you take that or could you take say a various biomarker and just plug that into my care and say, Hey, we're going to monitor this for this patient. 100%. That's, so Dexcom that's is actually one of the elements that we're connected to. And so we, we capture a lot of the basic vitals, weight, blood pressure, blood glucose, both with a glucometer as well as a continuous glucometer, like you described, and then temperature. And then we actually also are guided by our design team to try to find 
really niche or novel interactions. So we say we've got access to PROMIS, the Patient Reported Outcome Measurement Information System, and over 300 different PROMs are already directly connected into our system that you can capture in a HIPAA compliant SOC 2 type 2 sort of a, a cybersecurity element. But then we also have those connected physical devices. What do you actually care about? And so we've gotten some really interesting responses back, like the rheumatology design team has said, a lot of our inflammatory diseases present in the uh, extremities first. And so they've got these gestalts with their patients where they'll say, I'll shake a patient's hand, see how strong they squeeze my hand, and if they wince when they do it. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my gestalt for it, is the therapeutic working? So mm -hmm. they said, could you find a dynamometer or something to give me a moniker of grip strength and follow it up with a pain score? Because then from a remote distance, I can kind of do a physical exam of my patient in some ways. So we found a young startup company that does a dynamometer for grip strength and they get each digit's grip strength and then have a pinch strength score. And then we follow it up with a, we could follow that up with a pain score and actually give them a feeling of, is the therapeutic working over an extended period of time? So any of those biomarkers, physiologic measures, uh, objective data, subjective data rather of the um, PROs, if there are any of things like that that are important, we, we try to culminate that into a care pathway and then give a very specific program to a patient based on their condition and multimorbidities uh, so that that provider gets exactly what they want to see at the point in time that they want to see it. So, so if I could please just another follow up to that, because I'm imagining a world that may be just really close at hand where I have a monitor that will measure BNP or troponins or any other type biomarker that can be plugged into this platform, right? Are you at that point or is that the future? Tell me about that. We are. So we've got, uh, kind of to Dr. Cole's question, we right. have a couple of lab companies that are partners of ours where we can get in-home lab testing from patients and present that back. So exactly to your point, Dr. Brown, if it's a post-departure uh, of a patient from a hospital and you're specifically looking at heart failure measures like you described, BNP and troponin for heart deterioration. And if those are earlier warning signs versus fluid retention from weight gain, mm -hmm. if you can combine both of those things, and arguably you wanna have the belt and suspenders for those patients, because as a hospital system, if that heart failure patient comes back in as a readmit, that's and right. getting gained both on readmission and on penalties uh, that's in right. the future. So that's that, that exists today and what it is that we can do. But the idea being, we want to build in the evidence when we see the propensity of a patient to go back and have that early detection, that transition phase that Dr. Cole was referencing as well and say, before it even becomes a true alarm, right. this patient's looking a little bit iffy, you should probably engage or send home health or someone, whatever the right appropriateness of care again, whatever the right balance of cost and quality is that you need to do. That is good stuff. Better patient care, better reimbursement. It's, it's great. Reduce readmission rates. I saw in one of the st case studies, what you reduced admiss readmissions rate by some crazy number. Here it is. 259% reduction in hospital stays. This is one of the studies you guys did. Yeah. And to be fair, that wasn't our platform, but in essence, it is that platform. Those were some of the evidentiary pieces that actually created the reimbursement in the space. So what we found was one of our advisors is actually a former American Medical Association constituent and actually helped get their physiologic monitoring codes approved. And so he's been a great resource for us as to what matters in the field. And it was studies like that, that Medicare and Medicaid looked at it and said, this is worth paying for because we actually mm -hmm. save money. So right. coming out of University of Pittsburgh Medical Center and University of Mississippi Medical Centers, two different cohorts of studies, the, the, the cliff notes of that were they, they studied the uncontrolled hypertensive insulin-dependent diabetics and patients kind of like that. They 
they kind of spared no expense like the Jurassic Park John Hammond feel. And they, mm -hmm. they threw a bunch of devices at the patients. They threw a lot of care coordination at the patients and then studied it because UPMC is one of those few uh, unicorns that's the full closed loop system. They know the payments of the patients, they deliver the care of the patients, and they provide the cost of both the providers and the health system. Mm -hmm. And so they found for every, roughly for every dollar they spent, they saved a range of five to 10 to $15 per patient over an extended period of time of roughly five years. So that's meaningful savings in the market, which gets back to that appropriateness of care that I keep harping on. Because now, exactly to your, your statement a second ago, Dr. Brown, patients get better care than they've ever gotten before. It's basically concierge medicine subsidized by payers, which is what they have a, a thirst and a desire and seem to be an expectation for because of this consumer-driven market. So the patient's delighted, the provider's happy because now I've got this one to five sort of a, a mechanic of savings. If I keep a patient on this platform, I'm getting proactive care to prevent that costly care downstream of a patient. Even in things as simple as episodic touch points where it might be a periprosthetic joint infection early warning where I can get ahead of it, those types of things. And then from the provider's perspective, you're actually reconnecting that ethical tie that you have of provider to patient so that you're delivering that care that payers and other people have stepped in with data and kind of fractured that quite frankly. And you're inundated with patient volume because it's there's so many sick people out there and the wait times are six months. So what used to be an hour long visit at home has become an hour long visit in the clinic has become a 30 minute visit in the clinic has become a, if you're lucky, two to six minute visit in the clinic. But we need to rebuild that relationship with the patient, uh, which I know everyone wants to do. And we can do that in a very efficient way, almost with kind of the, the chat bots and all these other elements are ways to make that really, really efficient in the end. So it's a it's that triple aim win that we we hope for in healthcare is definitely our aspiration. Scott, it, what oversight exists in this in this space? Because it seems like when when new mm. codes are created, it creates a gold rush and you've got a lot of imitation players come in and you, and you hate to see something that's really novel uh, get, get taken away or, or just uh, the pathway hard to, to, to provide it just because of bad actors. And perhaps I'm asking you to talk about competitors. You, maybe you can't say, but what, what, what can you say about that? that a that's a, that's a, <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's a great question though. And it's, it's similar in regards to your, the first part of your question, what oversight exists. I think it's really two governing bodies that exist for most of the elements that are probably be intuitive for the audience the Food and Drug Administration, so the FDA and then Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services and or commercial payers have their own regulation aspects. So the FDA requires you to be a medical device. So our platform is designated as a software as a medical device. So a SAMD, if you've heard of that acronym in the past. So we've got that level of rigor, which is, which is great. Then uh, beyond that, the payers, once they release those types of reimbursement, they have their own oversight. And COVID certainly drove some novelty or a unique experience in this field where during a public health emergency, anytime you heard telemedicine or telehealth with its down regulation, opening up access, our types of reimbursement was, was grandfathered in with that as well. So RPM and RTM were kind of the, the siblings that were just brought along with it. So the short answer there is during that time, there were no audits that were taking place on any of those services because they were trying to make sure patients had access to critical care. And this remote monitoring and some of those elements were considered part of that critical care uh, offering and ecosystem. And so now that that expired at the beginning of May, around May 10th, I think, now we're really seeing kind of the beginning of a life cycle of that oversight from payers, in my opinion 
where the typical element is we want to get data over a several year term then we go back and look at some of the fringe cases where why does this physician billing like crazy and these other people aren't billing like crazy and the groups that typically do that on behalf of medicare are what's called the max the medicare administrative contractors and so the max can do local coverage determinations or national coverage determinations by themselves and just recently the max several of them i should say because i think there's four to six i forget how many across the u.s but several of them got together in the Northeast and the Southeast and actually explicitly reviewed these RPM and RTM codes, one of the several buckets of, of reimbursement that we have. And that kicked up a little bit of alarm in the market of saying, uh-oh, are they looking to try to redact, retract, narrow scope, et cetera? And they ended up coming away, in fact, just a week or so ago saying no changes at all to this. So a lot of subject matter experts like yourselves kicked in on the call and said, this is really important for us. And we have, we have been really distracted from doing our typical workflow of doing the evidentiary build and publications to support these needs because of things like COVID. So let us get back and continue to deliver good care and start to do the appropriate documentation for these codes to substantiate them over time. And it seemed like that, that yielded a really, really positive response from the Medicare administrators in the end. So I think those are the two groups. And I think it is potentially on the bubble based on bad care like any CPT code is but it seems like the early days, the response has been very, very strongly positive. That's good to hear. That's yes. good to hear. Can you review the the verticals? Um, you know, how many? What what are the the most developed? Mm. And the most developed does that does that match revenues? Are you most developed bringing in the most money, or what's the future look like as well? Uh, I'll, I'll break it down into two macro verticals, and then underneath one of them, I think, will be the heart of your question. So we do have this virtual care service line build, which is what we've been talking mostly about. So adding in these RPM, RTM, CCM, PCM, and all these other hosts of virtual uh, reimbursement for the actual physician providers. The other one is providing services for strategics that exist in the marketplace. So the groups like uh, all of the major Medtronics and Nuvasives and Smith & Nephews, Zimmer Biomet, Stryker, JMJ, and then in the pharmaceutical space of Novartis and Amgen and those different fields, that's a space where we generate real-world evidence for those groups to gauge the effectiveness of their therapeutics. We already have two clients in that field, and we're looking to extend that field out as well. So hopefully that's a good rooting element of the two different spaces. Inside the building virtual care space, uh, the different subspecial, I, I, I then sub break that out in the way that we described earlier, just like you set it up with the question of the surgical specialties and the episodic care delivery, and then the medical space. And then within those two fields, we've gotten well over, I think it's 18 different specialties, if not subspecialties that we've been able to enact use with. So all the ones that I rattled off before, but orthopedists, rheumatology, and then orthopedists, of course, have their own large subspecialty space of upper extremity or shoulder, elbow, wrist, hand, we can uh, break down the human body into all those fields. So we really have use across a broad space, across all those elements uh, to date. I think the ones that it's, the way I break down a market about how quickly you can penetrate it is really three factors. One is product market fit. So does somebody, when you mention it, does somebody really want what you have? And then the next space is, do you as a business have deep commercial reach into that space? So what is your commercial opportunity in that field? And then the last one is, how mature is the market? If I say Coke, do you know that that means a soda? Or do you have no idea what I'm talking about? And so with those three factors, I think in the medical specialties, we actually have a much quicker opportunity, more deeply, because people in cardiology, as an example, 
they were already doing cardiac rhythm management, CRM of patients. They were doing implantables, looking at how these patients responded. So they had these care teams already built inside of it. So that third bucket of, you know, when it, if I say Coke, do you know what I mean? When I said monitoring, they actually knew what it meant in that space. And they're like, oh yeah, we have those four people over there that call and ask about blood pressures every day. Or if you go to an orthopedic practice and you say, do you want to monitor your patients? There's definitely an initial trepidation of, hold on, we already get a lot of information. Do I actually want to know more about those patients and do I have the infrastructure to be able to do it? So I think in the episodic space, we've got a little bit more market development to build in that space. And so that's why we started to actually put in place a service line, the services themselves, and say, we can deliver those services for you while we make you understand what the relevance is and what Coke actually means when we talk about it. We're in the medical specialty space. They already got, they already have the staff and it's intuitive to them to be able to execute. And then for the product market fit, hypertension, they want blood pressure. We've got a great product market fit. On the orthopedic side and on the specialty side, we had to start developing those elements like I described with the dynamometer piece to make it really relevant in that space to make it happen for the rheumatology groups. And then for orthopedists, you know, hypertension is to blood pressure readings, is to cardiology as OA is to range of motion and pain and function is to the orthopedist. So we're building out and we actually are just about to acquire a virtual physical therapy company as well so that we can do at-home physical therapy for the patients and bring in those range of motion readings on a real-world, ongoing basis. So we're in the process of really refining that product market fit. So when we describe what it is that we have, everyone says this is what we want. And we're right on the threshold of that, which I think is going to be the inflection point of our growth as a business. So Scott, um, I see how this would benefit the patient. I see how it would benefit a practice because you're going to have this mountain of data to go back to Dr. Cole's practice and say, hey, this care path works. This is better for the patient. And hey, here's your codes. Here's how you reimburse for RPM, remote patient monitoring, RTM, remote therapy monitoring. But help me and the listeners understand how that's monetized for my care path or the investors of my care path to make money because I'm not fully understanding that part. Got it. Thank you for that redirect, Dr. Brown. And in the space of reimbursement to the earlier numbers that I referenced of roughly 105 to 150, 105 to $150 per patient per month. That's also a different thought process in reimbursement. It's a little bit less transactional of I do this procedure once, I make a larger amount of money, and then I move on to the next patient. Think about this almost like a Netflix of things, which is the business that everyone wants to be in are these recurring revenue models for, for whether it be your business with patients or whether it be our business of subscription fees. That's much more what this virtual care service line does for the provider space is as long as the patient has relevance and need, which in many instances in chronic care is the life of that patient, but even in the episodic view of the patient, it can be as long as three, six, 12 months of that patient. So you're getting that per patient per month reimbursement. And then we take not as a percentage, but you can think of it as a percentage, roughly call it 40 to 45% of what that reimbursement is, comes in as gross revenue to our business. And for that, we enable a tech stack that allows you to be able to get that reimbursement connect you to the device ecosystem if you want a device which is covered as a part of that cost, and then any of the two-way communication elements. And there's a slight upcharge if we need to provide the clinical services for that team. So my so care path takes a cut of what they help the practice make. Is that right? It's exactly it. So and it's I'm, zero risk to the practice. If they get started, they make gross revenue straight out of the gates, and then we make a percentage of that. So there's instant cash flow day one with that patient with no upfront fees. 
And I'm, I want to ask just a couple more questions to clarify this point, if I can, yes. Dr. Cole. I'm seeing a slide here that says ROI of 373 for every dollar spent. Is that roughly what a practice is looking at? That is. So you should spend as much money using my care path as possible. Yeah. <laughs> right? Absolutely. Because, no, because we're helping patients. We're making the care better. We're making our practice easier to run. And we're making money too. It sounds like a win-win-win, right? It is. And it, this kind of goes back to Dr. Cole's uh, question that he alluded to around competition. And I, I hate to say names, and I won't say names. I'll try to cast it into different buckets. So there's lots of companies that exist that do elements of what we do. And I used this term at the beginning of the, the interaction where I said there's kind of a point solution fatigue. And I think it exists inside of physicians offices or management service organizations, MSOs that manage large numbers of physician offices or hospitals, where they're looking at groups that can just capture patient reported outcomes. So there's a host of companies that do that, where I'll put in air quotes, all they do is send surveys to patients and get you back pain scores, function scores, et cetera. Then there's a group of services that do virtual physical therapy. So they send your patient home, they can do those elements. Then there's ones that just do patient engagement to make sure the patient doesn't come back and get readmitted into the hospital and those pieces. Then there's ones that do net promoter score and marketing elements and kind of the digital front end of enrollment of a patient. So, you know, how did you like the office visit on a scale of zero to 10? Which part did you like, not like? There's different, each of those is an industry in and of itself. We're bringing a lot of those, if not all of those things together into one harmonized solution that makes you money. Every one of those verticals, if you get a different business and you say, I want to do this, 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 you are paying for those solutions and people pay every single day. I was just talking to a group of uh, surgeons in the, in the Northwest two weeks ago, that's over 250 surgeons. And their CEO was saying, we pay for each a company from each of those buckets today and we make nothing off of it. If we can harmonize that into one element and know if a patient's on all those elements and turn that into a revenue stream and ultimately a profit center for our company. And so that that's kind of the... Same thing I think you had as a reaction of why wouldn't we try to do something like this? Scott, I wanted to ask how you're getting into the offices of the CEOs. How, what are your marketing channels? Because I can see where everyone that has a practice would be interested in this. How are you contacting those people? Mm, thank you for that question. It was one of the three components that I referenced earlier, product market fit, channel reach, and then the third one being how developed is the market. And I glossed over the second one of the channel and reach. So that one is, is a unique one for our business. So being birthed, again, that health digital aspect, being birthed out of the medical device field and some of the, some of the spaces in pharmaceuticals, we actually have really interesting reach. We, we develop relationships over the years with over 750 different 1099 sales representatives that exist in the market. It's very common in orthopedics to have these independent sellers in the space, but even outside of orthopedics and cardiac implantables, they also use these types of models as well. So we, in essence, go to these independent contractors that we've designated as channel partners, and they generate leads for us. And our go-to-market strategy is they fill up our funnel. So they are our lead generation element. And we've had in sales and in commercialization ourselves, we've had lots of experience with these types of folks because the perception might be it's really hard to get those people motivated. And it is if you don't have the right balance of an algorithm. And our thoughts are these people, like everyone in life, certainly they're coin operated, but more so they're quality of life operated. So it's really a juice and squeeze. How much, what are you asking of them, of their time and of their knowledge base? And then what could they get in return for it? So these channel partners get an eat what they kill framework of a commission percentage. 
but really all we ask of them is to tee up uh, our story and describe what we've just been describing. We want to help you build a virtual care service line that's no money up front and creates instant cash flow for your business. Do you want to hear more about it? And then that's what they tell their friends and their physician partners in the market. And then they, they tee up a, a Zoom call for us. And then on the Zoom call, that's where we use our W2 Salesforce to then really drive home the message, be the technical experts of the story, close that agreement or set up the right next sales call point. And then when the licensing is closed, that's when our McKinsey group steps in that I described of the customer success managers and specialists that we have in our system. They come in and do the account onboarding and that piece. And then that same channel partner is our canary in the coal mine to make sure things are going well with feet on the street on the back end because they've got uh, incentive to make sure that this program continues to go on a longitudinal basis. And then also we have a same, they have a, an involvement in same store growth. So as an example, if we were to, to sell into one of your practices, if it was just one of you or each of you as individuals that wanted to do this program, well, you've got partners that want to try to do it. So we use either our customer success team or those same channel partners to say, hey, Dr. Brown, hey, Dr. Cole, who's somebody else that you think may have interest in doing this if we did not get institution-wide buy-in on the front end? So that's the, the flow. Lead generation by the 1099 channel partner, execution of commercial licensing agreement by our W2 team, onboarding by our customer success team, and then same store growth is kind of all tides raise the ship and everybody goes after it. Just as Dr. Brown was describing, you know, sometimes it feels funny to talk about the business and medicine, but really in the end, this, this we feel, and obviously we drink our own Kool-Aid, but we feel is a win-win-win for all parties involved. So the socialization of it is hopefully elevating the level of care that gets delivered and if there are people that have access into that network, then that creates value that should be benefited for sure. Yeah. I mean, because we, it's my personal belief that it's, it's beyond the time to quit, you know, apologizing and, and for physicians to feel bad about yeah. um, making a living, you know, at a time when 117,000 doctors left the practice of medicine in 2021 yeah. and, and burnout is at epidemic levels. I just think physicians getting more involved in the business of medicine, particularly once they leave the, the doors of their practice and they're not, this is not really a self prescribing thing, but just getting involved in the various avenues of business. I think, I just think something we need as a group to start talking about. And so that's, that's part of our mission is to just, and so we want to attach as many people as we can to our platform and just start talking about this because it's, it's important for the future. Because if you look at the direction of, of healthcare from a provider standpoint, it's, it's, it's like a plane that's got to get pulled back on the rudder really hard. I think you've plucked a heartstring of one of the reasons why we built the business. This again will be a little bit potentially at the risk of sounding like it's disingenuine because it's so esoteric, but one of the main reasons we did this is the old moniker of what's the definition of insanity is to do the same thing and expect different results. And so from an outsider looking into the practice and the business of medicine, it seems like there's a, we're at kind of this critical point for providers where it is one of the few spaces of professional business where you get ratcheted back every year and doesn't happen in plumbing. We, I hear this everywhere I go. You go to all these different groups, it, the inverse happens, right? Everybody gets an inflationary benefit because of cost of living increase. So providers are getting ratcheted, ratcheted back. Then you've got this influx of patients in every specialty space that's taxing that system even more where everybody's working harder and harder. And then you layer on top of that physician burnout like you just described, Dr. Cole, and now this national staffing crisis. 
And that culminates to you all working harder than you ever have before for less money than you've ever made before. That's right. And so that what's the definition of insanity? You're going, all right, if I'm a surgeon, I just need to do more surgery. Well, it was an eight and a half percent reduction last year. Can you do eight and a half percent more surgeries? Maybe. Does the hospital have capacity in light of everything else that's going on? Maybe. Or maybe we need to think about things differently. And that's kind of the, I call it the medical industrial revolution is one of the elements that we're trying to help bring in to say, you can't have the same ratio of patient care, but you can't let care diminish in regards to the type of care that you're delivering to patients. So, you know, to get more surgery, to see more patients, that's going to fill up your clinic a whole lot more. Or do you need to keep the worried well tethered to your business off to the side and the well checks tethered to your business where you can still generate revenue off those patients in an appropriate way with these virtual services, but your clinic isn't inundated with those patient volumes. You can see the people you need to see to be generating those other sources of your core business revenue, whether it be you know medication titration, office visits, et cetera, that one-to-one, but you still see them face-to-face when you have that discussion or even on a telemedicine, it's synchronously all your time. We've got to find a way to break that cycle to be able to live and generate revenue from it and not feel bad about doing that because it's sure hundred percent well merge medical started from a place of frustration but hmm. it's we're turning it into something positive because like dr cole was saying i won't spend very much more time on it but physician burnout lack of access lack of understanding about financial instruments that's where this started, but we're, we're going to change that. And, um, you know, that's why we're here. You know, we want to enrich the lives of our friends. Um, and we want to help disruptive healthcare startups be introduced to the right audiences. And we strongly feel that Merge Medical will be a place for all allied health professionals to engage, interact, educate, and invest. So you're certainly at the right place, we think. Uh, I want to know more about you because we really didn't spend very much time on that. I want to know about more about you and the executive team who's leading my care path. Mm. Thanks for that opportunity. So there are three co-founders within my care path, myself, Corey Patrick and Brian Childress, myself and Corey are based in our Memphis office and Brian's based in the Dallas space. We all were birthed specifically out of orthopedics and one of the top four uh, medical device manufacturers in the lower extremity, large joints, so hip and knee replacements, trauma, that sort of a thing. Uh, My time was spent managing a business unit there, so it was the large joint reconstructive knee space or knee replacement, and it was about a $650, $675 million global business unit when I was there, so leading kind of the upstream design development, filling the product gaps, and then downstream support of that, and then the portfolio management of when something should be phased in or phased out, kind of a cross-functional team, they call them tiger team leaders of manufacturing quality, ops, uh, clinical quality, all those different components. And then um, Brian's time is spent largely, he's our chief commercial officer. So he spent most of his time from an individual sales contributor like those channel partners that we defined, uh, as well as into large regional responsibility into the market. And he's based again out of Dallas, but is a native Memphian by birth. And then Corey spent a lot of his time, he's kind of our unicorn in the rough. He's our secret weapon. So you can think of him as a Six Sigma black belt sort of process engineer. He started out in the professional affairs space was what it was defined, but basically how organizations contract with providers. So whether it's a design agreement with royalty base or non-royalty base, whether it's a consulting agreement or whether it's uh, doing any sort of clinical trials or other sort of piece, he came into the business right around the time of the U.S. Department of Justice's investigation into the marketplace. 
So he got he got the trial by fire and came out a gold brick, which is a good thing. So he restructured this business's entire way that they managed how you engage with with professionals. And as a result of that, has a deep understanding of how to automate processes and how you do processes in appropriate, highly regulated worlds. And then he shifted into health economics and then digital health sales, which made a great fit for our digital health solution in the end. So again, he's a jack of many different trades. So that's the core founding team that actually ideated this, this need of a business. And our ideation came from that professional experience, but also personal experience. My wife's a chronic uh, scoliosis patient that wakes up sometimes with her neck kind of frozen to the side. And uh, we've, we've had to struggle and fumble through that piece where I said, there's got to be a better way to, for her to be able to document what's going on with her on a day-to-day -day basis. Corey's mother is now passed, but she was a rheumatoid uh, arthritis patient. And he would see her as he grew up waking up every morning trying to figure out, should I do this exercise or should I just deal with the pain on a daily basis? Should I go get a gold injection or not? You know, what are, the, what are the solutions I have? What's the right thing to do? And Brian is actually a stage 3D melanoma skin cancer survivor, where by all accounts on the internet should be dead. So he's a researcher and went online and terrified himself, asked one question, got a thousand answers, and said, wait, I need to ask one question and get one response back that I know is a good response that's coming directly from my provider. I need to feel navigated through my care because this is a life or death thing for me. So each of us had those professional motivations, but also the or personal motivations, I should say, as well as the professional drives of seeing value-based care and bundled care and all of that. Then we have been blessed. We've taken the tact with our management team to be able to hire people that we've worked alongside and with uh, throughout all of our experiences. So beyond ourselves, the first and next 17 folks that join the business, we collectively have over 250 years of, of experience in the healthcare space from Medtronic, Smith & Nephew, Novo Nordisk, Sanofi, all these different elements. So we took the tact of, we don't want to hire the lesser expensive employee that you're taking a gamble on because every single person you put in your business, if you have them for three months or four months and then they evaporate, boy, that's a sunk cost because you have to, your productivity drops every person you bring into the company by training, educating, and all those different elements. So each person was like a a diamond we had to invest in and make sure that it was going to yield great polish and cut in the end. And we've been blessed with a group that's been with us some, since the very beginning. So we've got a head of sales that came from guidance into Smith & Nephew Orthopedics that then went into ENT and ran national sales. He's our vice president of business development named Al Kepler. We've got our head of marketing communications, Monty Claire, that comes from a background of Smith & Nephew and Medtronic of running multinational businesses and how do you get information out there. We've got a phenomenal marketing team, product management team that knows how to get the data from these designers because they've done it for Smith and Nephew and uh, Microport and all these companies. It's a nice thing about Memphis and concordantly Dallas. These spaces are really good hubs for uh, healthcare backgrounds. And Memphis is a bit of a diamond in the rough in that regard because it's it is. you may not think about it unless you've been here, but there's that's a right. lot of healthcare that's delivered here. Yeah, tons. L look at look at the home base of a lot of the companies we've talked to. And it's not necessarily just because we met them here. We met them out mm. through relationships and on the internet and they just happened to be here, you know, lo and behold. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned the, the industrial revolution earlier. A lot of people talk about AI being the fourth industrial mm. uh, revolution. Um, you know, it's, it's a buzzword, but it's, it's, it's real world too, right? It's happening. Um, how much, of your data intake and manipulation is is using AI at this point, or is that somewhere you're headed? That is a very intriguing thought. And the way that we step through that is 
in a, in a disciplined process. So we really have a three-step product strategy that's directly tied to a commercial strategy. And it's because I think companies at young phases of business can get out of over their skis really quickly and potentially outspend and need to raise more money, which deletes the investor group as well as the founder group. So we are very disciplined in doing this. And I, I give that preface or that context because it's a part of our strategy, but it's probably the next step strategy. Sure. And so the way that I think about it is we, we have this, this element that we call intake is the first step, which is basically if you can't measure it, you can't change it. And it just happened to be that remote monitoring was the reimbursement model and it kicks out a bunch of data. So within our first low thousands numbers of patients that we've gotten on the system, as an example, we have over 40 million data points on those patients, which as Dr. Brown, I believe mentioned earlier, that's like gold. So I view it as like an oil well underneath the ground that we haven't quite tapped into yet, but it's, we own the land around it right now. And so we built exactly the commercial model that I stepped through with you earlier around that. So there's, it's called, you know, uh, wildcatting for oil. That's our first business model for this data intake. So we make money on it. Our providers make money on it. We've got a great commercial model, but we're also wildcatting and setting up all these different oil wells of, of data. The second piece is that's going to enable more accuracy is when people use data points to actually go after and find the right oil fields. Well, that's kind of what we're going to do with this clinical decision support. So that's step two, which is the interpretation step. So first step data intake, Second step is the interpretation, because if we can't make it efficient, like I said, then we're going to run out of uh, oil fields to go after because no provider is going to want to use it. So that's why we've got to get this clinical decision support piece built out. So we're going to interpret the data and bring it back to you. But we can do that with standards like broad scoping standards, the AHA standard on how to manage hypertension, using our design teams to make that stuff different and, and more accurate and precise. So that's that interpretation step. So for that, we can actually go after payer models and different other elements in that field, which is what we'll be doing from a commercial strategy. Step three is that step that you described and alluded to, Dr. Cole, around augmented intelligence or artificial intelligence, where now you've got all this wealth of data that sits down beneath it, and that's the oil refinery step. How do we refine this data into something that's meaningful and actionable? And then what do you do with it? What, how is that asset to be able to be used? I think there's lots of companies out there that position we are an AI company, but they basically give their solutions away for free and raise tons of money because they need to be able to survive for five, 10 years before they actually aggregate the data that they can make into action and then develop a commercial model around it. So we've got this really disciplined fashion of in the intake space, bill reimbursement for RPM, RTM, and all the virtual elements. In the interpretation, clinical decision support phase, Go ahead and build, start to help build with payers and come up with this uh, balanced value-based care model from a commercial benefit standpoint. Then in the interpretation phase, get into digital therapeutics and actually delivering the direct care with these elements and get to the self-insured employers and go more deeply into the payer space. So that's a bit forward-looking for us, but we've already got a couple of partnerships in place to help us do it. It fits back to that old adage that I referenced earlier, know what you know, but know what you don't know. So we're going to definitely need a, a partner in that AI space to do the data science piece or and uh, in the next round's raise, we would go in and build that competency and hire data scientists to, to run that piece for us. I think that's a great answer and very responsible. Um, what, what can you say about potential? It sounds as if you certainly have revenue. Um, I would not expect that you're profitable because you're still really building everything out. So wh where do you stand on that on that timeline as far as um, hitting, hitting certain um, benchmarks and just where you want to be. 
Thank you for that. So the commercial traction that we've seen up to this point, I alluded to a little bit earlier, uh, we've got roughly 6060 signed licensing agreements from groups as small as a two-person specialty group to as large as the 10th largest hospital system in the U.S., which is Advent Health based in Orlando, but I think they're across roughly 10 different states. And within that commercial traction, through the uh, middle of last year, we had a great opportunity. We actually did not intend to go after what I call like an enterprise client, which is Advent Health. And we've also gotten the benefit of another organization called Bend Care, which has roughly, they're an MSO for a group of rheumatologists called Aracare. And they've got roughly 350 rheumatologists across the U.S. and roughly 90 offices. So both of those enterprise clients were the exclusive provider of these types of services for them. And if you combine both of them and just do a total addressable market size on them, it's over a $600 million annual recurring revenue opportunity for our business based on our first step data intake virtual care service line business model. So we've got tremendous upside opportunity, but with that came a lot of toil and effort of closing the sales of that account takes you know, four times longer than it does to close a private practice group, customizing and fine tuning the tool, getting through the socialization of it. So we're sitting right now in the inflection point of the commercial growth with those accounts, and we haven't realized the fruit of it yet. So these use of proceeds in this bridge round are to take that threshold of commercial scale and dump the money into it to see the benefit of those elements from the enterprise side. On the other piece, we're sitting in a very similar fashion to try to optimize those three elements that I described of product market fit, commercial depth, and then helping people understand how to build that business. Now we've put those pieces in place with providing the clinical services. So we've got that algorithm figured out as well, and we need to dump the money in and scale. So in short, this use of proceeds could get us right onto the cusp of cash flow positive as a business based on the current clients that we've already gotten, even if we don't action any more from what exists in the, in the pipeline coming up. And that's the intention of it is to get us to that point of either break even or hopeful cash flow positive. But if not, regardless, we're intending for one final raise after this raise, that would be a price round raise to get us to that point. And I want to ask, um, we talked about this already, a little bit more about the data, Jeff, you were talking about the AI. So the analogy you were using was the oil field. You've got all this, the data is the oil. We all know this. I can see where a CMS or a large insurer or a, even Advent would pay for that data. That's the mineral rights. Am I using the analogy correctly? And is that being done? Is that the part of the plan for your revenue stream for my care path? It is. I, I view the data as exactly like you defined. So the oil space and then the refinery aspect of it is our responsibility of what to do with that data. And that could yield multiple different types of product. So it might be, you know, true oil, it might be gasoline, there might be different elements of it. So further to your point, we could create an insurance company, as an example, would have really strong interest in what Dr. Cole referenced earlier of where is that bubble of time where I have a window of time to to action something before it becomes really expensive to me. Right. So that set of logic, which is yielded out of the data, it would be a, a product that we could sell to a, a, an insurance company and say, you set pre-offs based on what you think of, I'll use a total joint again as an example, six weeks of physical therapy, X amount of this. They just do that because they think that's what's best. Well, what if for this specific patient, you should skip physical therapy entirely and just go straight into a total knee replacement because that's going to yield the best cost and outcome of that patient. 
they have no idea and they're too scared to do it because they don't have the data. But if we actually yield the data that shows that element, then that might be a product of it. Another product of it might be definitive healthcare as an organization that when I was at my last role, people would pay 150,000 or 250,000 a seat just to be able to query that data. It was a claims database to say which physicians are using which types of procedures more frequently. So back to your point, the crude oil might actually also be a product in and of itself, where if we structure it and make it queryable, people might want to go in and do their own studies and see what it is that they can yield from it. And then we sell that as a seat and access to that unique set of data that we have based on which therapeutic works well or doesn't. Uh, and then lastly, uh, other organizations may want to run their own studies inside of it. So that's where we actually already have a couple of relationships. One, we're doing a pilot study with Amgen, which is a 48, I think 38 or $48 billion annual recurring revenue business that's looking into the bone health space, so osteoporosis and penia. And they want to see the effectiveness of their drug and therapeutic as it relates in that space, as well as see if, if you can add to the fracture liaison service, if you can add different sources of reimbursement in there. So that's one of the examples of groups that even in the earliest phases of our data, people are really, really interested in this because they spend tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars a year on trying to get data, but get it through these clinical trials that again are so narrow casted because there's so much anxiety that goes into the outcomes of these things. You have to look at one outcome. You need to look at it within a very controlled environment. So we have no idea really how our products perform once they're in the market. And, and it's a way to, I would spend money as an insurance element to make sure that my product has the best chances of a good outcome and at least getting early detection of that. So those are, I'm sure there's many more, but those are three use cases that at least spring to mind straight out of the gates. Scott, uh, tell us about this uh, funding round, this raise that you have. Mm, yes. The current round, we've, we've been through two prior rounds. We did a seed round of investment and we've done a series A over the rolling past time since really 2019. And as a part of the last priced round and going into the next round, with all this commercial opportunity that we've got sitting on the cusp right now, we felt it was appropriate to do a bridge raise. And in the bridge raise, we're doing a convertible note to terms of really upside opportunity creation with the $45 million valuation cap and then downside risk protection of the 20% discount off the next round's value, just because of, there's always uncertainty that exists in the commoditization market of raising funds. It comes with a 5% annual recurring simple revenue uh, or of interest off of that piece as well. And we're looking for six to six and a half million dollars as the upper end of that. And we've got virtually half of it already allocated with prior investors. And one of the reasons why I was so excited about this conversation with Merge Medical is our raise journey has been fairly unique, at least to us, where we've not gone to any institutional funds. So it's been all through exactly Merge Medical's audience, high net worth individuals. We've had roughly 45% of our funds, if not greater, have been from physicians in the marketplace. And then another roughly 20, 25% have been through high net worth sales reps, independent 1099 reps or distributors. And the rest has just been smart money through former executives and different things like that over the years. So your audience is one that we really have a, a soft heart for right. and we continue to try to do and move forward with in this space. And, and what's the minimum investment? Minimum investment's $100,000 and then our board, which are the three founders, uh, still have an opportunity to take anything less than that. Everybody like you that's coming to the platform, it's not just about the investment, but People that will view this will be dentists, chiropractors, and mm. people that would use the services, not just invest in the funding. So it's just such a win, 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 win. It's just great. Well, I, I appreciate you being here. This is probably a good time to close. I want to thank everybody for joining us. This is uh, your host, Dr. Jeff Brown. 
uh, with Merge Medical Podcast. We're here with Scott Laster, my care path with my co-host, Dr. Jeff Cole on a beautiful Memorial Day weekend. You guys get out there and have fun, everybody.